to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Separate Fingers, One Hand, Booker T. Washington. Stop us if this sounds familiar, but in the early 1950s, the United States was gripped by fear of a terrible pandemic and desperate for a vaccine. Tragically, it especially struck children, who were often quarantined at home to keep them from catching the illness. That illness was polio, and the man who provided the vaccine in the end was, of course, Dr. Jonas Salk. Less well-known is the story of how the Tuskegee Institute helped bring the disease to heal. Led by the black doctors Russell Brown and James Henderson, and with the involvement of many female technicians, the Tuskegee Research Center played a crucial role in providing cells that could be used to test the vaccine, and in the process developed new protocols for growing cell cultures. It's a story that would have delighted the Institute's first president, Booker T. Washington, whose fondest hope was that the school would teach its students to conquer the forces of nature and prove the usefulness, reliability, and worth of the Negro race. The school at Tuskegee, Alabama began in 1881, Once he was appointed to run it, Washington applied lessons he had learned at the Hampton Institute in Virginia, lessons he then tried to impart to the students of Tuskegee, and by extension, all African Americans. He articulated this vision in a work called The Future of the American Negro, published in 1900. At this point, he was already having to challenge a belief that remains widespread even today, that Tuskegee education was all about embracing the drudgery of mindless manual labor. Now, Washington fervently believed that there was nothing ignoble or unworthy about manual labor. The Tuskegee ethos was meant to undo one pernicious effect of slavery, namely that labor had become associated with unfreedom. The hard-won industrial skills of use in such occupations as carpentry and agriculture were taken for granted by slaves. It was natural, like breathing, and forgotten as soon as possible once emancipation came. But for Washington, this sort of work should never be mindless. The constant aim, he said, is to show the student how to put brains into every process of labor. At Tuskegee, the black man was to be taught to put so much intelligence into his labor that he will see dignity and beauty in the occupation and love it for its own sake. This message made for a striking contrast with those being advanced by other black leaders of the Reconstruction and Jim Crow eras where figures like Douglas, Turner, Wells, and Fortune issued fiery demands for political equality and better treatment from whites, Washington demanded a better work ethic from his own race. In fact, he was rather skeptical about allowing poor, uneducated black men across the South to vote. He did mention equality in this context, but only to argue that the literacy and education tests that eliminated these people from the voter registry should also strike off poor, uneducated whites. The happy result would be to get rid of the large mass of ignorant voters of both races. Simply letting everyone vote without qualifications actually took away an important incentive for people to seek education. As for other manifestations of Southern white racism, Washington preferred not to dwell on them. He instead emphasized the common benefit that both races would enjoy from improved relations and claimed that most whites were friendly to their African-American fellows and wished them well. Writing about the future of the Negro, 
he foresaw good things ahead, with the best white people and the best black people standing together in favor of law and order and justice, I believe that the safety and happiness of both races will be made secure. Views like this led Washington's contemporaries to see him as an accommodationist and a conservative. Labels still applied to him today. How many have wondered could he be so naive? There's a story about the Russian anarchist Peter Kropotkin being told that one of the leading black figures in America was a conservative, bursting into laughter and asking what the American blacks had to conserve. Closer to home, William Monroe Trotter got himself arrested for causing outrage at a public event in Boston in 1903 after shouting at Washington, are the rope and the torch all the race is to get under your leadership? He disdainfully said that if Washington was recognized as a leader of the black race, this was simply because he was chosen for that position by the white American race. Trotter had a point. Washington got funding for Tuskegee from wealthy white donors, including Andrew Carnegie, and consorted with presidents. One of them, Teddy Roosevelt, called him one of the most useful as well as one of the most distinguished of American citizens of any race. What exactly did Washington do, or say, to become so enamored of white Americans and so loathed by more radical black colleagues? The key event was a speech he gave at an international exposition in Atlanta in September 1895. As he himself noted, it was remarkable that he was speaking at a major event together on a platform with Southern whites. No less remarkable was the artfulness with which Washington managed to be both conciliatory and inspiring. He encouraged black people to cultivate friendly relations with the Southern white man who is their next door neighbor. As for white listeners, he reminded them of how often black people had cared for them when sick or nursed them as children. Here, we might recall the far more provocative way that Sojourner Truth reminded whites of this same fact by baring her breasts at them. Right after that came the most famous or perhaps notorious part of the speech. Washington said, We shall stand by you with a devotion that no foreigner can approach, ready to lay down our lives if need be in defense of yours, interlacing our industrial, commercial, civil, and religious life with yours, in a way that shall make the interests of both races one. In all things that are purely social, we can be as separate as the fingers, yet one as the hand, in all things essential to mutual progress. This was pure Washington, and the mixed-race crowd went wild. The white press commended Washington's tact, with the New Orleans Picayune calling him a prominent and sensible man who had given a most temperate address. The Atlanta Constitution was more enthusiastic still, calling the speech a turning point in the progress of the Negro race. Looking back on the event, Washington could rightly argue that many black people who read the speech found it excellent, even if some found it insufficiently militant. He himself was proud of the address and included it in his autobiography, Up From Slavery, published in 1901 and still his most widely read work. Much like Douglas, Washington sought to weave his philosophy of race relations into the story of his own life. He too was born into slavery, but there's nothing here to remind us of Douglas's confrontation with the slave driver, Covey. Instead, Washington mildly remarks that his masters were not especially cruel. More generally, he allows that the black man got nearly as much out of slavery as the white man did. While not denying the vicious injustice of slavery, he tends to agree with those who saw a kind of providence in the way that it had brought Africans to America. The result was 10 million Negroes 
who are in a stronger and more hopeful condition, materially, intellectually, morally, and religiously, than is true of an equal number of black people in any other portion of the globe. Of course, Washington also takes the opportunity to preach the gospel of hard work in his autobiography. He deplores the way that, in the heady days after the Civil War, black Southerners prioritized higher learning and political office over maintaining and developing industrial skills. At Tuskegee, he is proud to say, new students have to put in a full day's labor at the laundry or brickyard before enjoying the privilege of studying academic branches for two hours in the evening. By way of contrast, he tells the story of a dirt-poor black man he once found sitting in a miserable shack focused on studying a French grammar book. While often critical of his people, he rarely has a harsh word for whites. He does describe being turned away from a hotel for his skin color, but hastens to add that he felt no bitterness about it, and claims that he has never once been insulted by any Southern white man. As for those whites who do try to restrain black progress, he has only pity for them, since their mistake stems from their own lack of opportunity for the highest kind of growth. In any case, they are only fighting the inevitable, like people trying to stop a train by throwing themselves on the track. A minor but telling contrast between this narrative and the autobiographical writings of Frederick Douglass comes with the way both talk about traveling in Europe. We saw that Douglass, and Ida B. Wells likewise, pointedly contrasted the viciousness of American racism to the welcome they received in Britain and Ireland. Washington, by contrast, makes no such comparison, instead waxing enthusiastic about the wonderful herds of Holstein cattle he saw in Holland. With the benefit of hindsight, Washington's excessive optimism can often seem downright painful, as when he airily remarks at the very beginning of the 20th century that the racist terrorism of the Ku Klux Klan has already faded into historical irrelevance. Actually, hindsight was not really necessary in order to object to his rosy assessment of race relations in the American South. Apart from the aforementioned attacks by Trotter, there was John Hope, the president of Atlanta University. He said already in 1896, following on Washington's speech in Atlanta, that it was cowardly and dishonest not to demand full equality for African Americans. Years later, he was somewhat more balanced in his judgment, but still critical. Washington had helped to produce tolerance for the Negro, but at too great a price. Ida B. Wells complained, as we mentioned while discussing her, that Washington's one-size-fits-all approach to black education was simplistic. She also criticized his habit of complaining about poor moral standards among African Americans, charging that he was willing to injure his race for the benefit of his school. Still today, Washington has plenty of detractors, especially when he's compared to his younger rival, W.E.B. Du Bois, the most famous critic of his approach to black uplift. Du Bois was at first guardedly admiring of Washington, saying after the famous Atlanta speech that the compromise it offered might be the basis of a real settlement between whites and blacks in the South if the South opened up to the Negroes the doors of economic opportunity. But he would change his mind, convicting Washington of effectively conceding the alleged inferiority of the Negro race and withdrawing many of the high demands of Negroes as men and American citizens. Much later, as an old man looking back from the perspective of 1954, Du Bois was more moderate in his assessment, though hardly congratulatory. Oh, Washington was a politician. He was a man who believed that we should get what we could get. Not too long after that, though, Washington and his legacy started to be reassessed. The historian Emma Lou Thornborough, 
writing in the 1960s, pointed out that while progressive white contemporaries loved Washington, many white supremacists despised him, precisely because he offered such a plausible route to interracial harmony. Later still, Lewis R. Harlan began to study the collected papers of Washington, and offered a far more nuanced picture than the one presented by his most famous text, Up From Slavery. We now know that Washington's peace-loving public persona went together with behind-the-scenes lobbying and legal activity, for instance by quietly supporting court cases against segregation. This more textured and detailed portrait of Washington has opened up new avenues for criticism too, especially as regards his ruthless use of the tools of political patronage. If we want to evaluate Washington from a more abstract, dare we say, philosophical perspective, the obvious place to start is with his theory of education. This was more than just the exhortation to roll up your sleeves and get to work. As we've already intimated, Washington was all for the application of science and intelligence to labor. He complained that a hidden cost of slavery was that the abundance of manpower meant that labor-saving devices were not in demand, and therefore not developed. Tuskegee would not make the same mistake. Those 1950s scientists who helped cure polio could have taken inspiration from their own school at the turn of the century, since at that time, the famous agricultural scientist, George Washington Carver, worked at the Institute. In keeping with this, Washington did not, contrary to popular conception, simply scorn higher book learning. True, he did mock that poor fellow in the shack trying to learn French, and likewise told the story of an African who could read Cicero, but was wearing no trousers. On a larger political scale, he criticized Haiti for its ambitious educational schemes modeled on those in France, which left it having to import skilled workers like engineers. But Washington's considered opinion was that advanced learning would be appropriate as a further step, following after more basic material and economic achievements. Thus, he said that the girls at Tuskegee could well be offered such learning so long as they also acquired practical skills. I favor any kind of training, whether in the languages or mathematics, that gives strength and culture to the mind, but at the same time, to give them the most thorough training in the latest and best methods of laundrying and other kindred occupations. He also outright denied that practical economic success was a goal to be pursued in its own right. Material possession is not the chief end of life, but should be a means of aiding us in securing our rightful place as citizens. Industrial education was thus only ever a means to a further end, the end being full equality and freedom for the black race. I plead for industrial education and development for the Negro not because I want to cramp him, but because I want to free him. Washington's first-things-first approach to racial progress can, in fact, be seen as fitting into a larger pattern of American moral and political thought, one that is also reflected in the works of Frederick Douglass, as we observed when discussing him. Both embrace the ideal of self-reliance, which Washington explicitly extended from the personal to the political level, saying, the crucial test for a race as for an individual is its ability to stand upon its own feet. Another thing worth bearing in mind as one reads Washington's public pronouncements is that they are just that, pronouncements meant for public consumption and aimed at manipulating his audience in various ways. Both his allies and his enemies realized that Washington's long-term goals were more ambitious than he let on. A colleague allowed that the goal was to bring the wooden horse inside the walls of Troy, while one hardline racist 
warned that the Tuskegee program was not really intended to produce humble, cooperative workers. Rather, Washington was training them all to be masters of men, to be independent. In Up From Slavery, Washington himself talks of crafting his message for each audience. If, as other African-Americans activists complained, he was more harsh in criticism of his own race than of the white race, this is because he thought that attacking white listeners would do less good than appealing to their better nature. This he did constantly, often by calling upon their Christian sense of morality. A favorite tactic was to emphasize the friendliness of most Southern whites toward their black neighbors. As we've admitted, this can seem over-optimistic and naive, but it can also be read as an aspiration disguised as a statement of fact. When in The Future of the American Negro, he says that in general, the white man wants the black man to improve his present condition, he's implicitly inviting his white audience to identify with that goal. This brings us to what we see as a fundamental, though often underappreciated, aspect of Washington's thought, his emphasis on moral character. His ideas on this topic can be gleaned from a collection of short addresses, or one might call them homilies, that Washington gave to his students at Tuskegee. At first glance, they seem like mere pep talks, laced with avuncular humor and tough love. But upon more careful reading, they show that ethical virtue is what Washington most wanted to impart to his students, even more than skills in carpentry or agriculture, though he does find time to mention those wonderful cows in Holland again. He tells his young charges that they are being trained as leaders of the race, and that they will achieve this through self-discipline and high ideals. He could be talking about his own tactics for coaxing white people towards benevolence when he tells them, grow into the habit of talking about the bright side of life. Just in proportion as you do this, you will find that you will not only influence yourself in the right direction, but that you will also influence others that way. He was an inveterate optimist, all right, but for him, optimism doesn't mean making things out to be better than they are now. It means imagining how they may get better in the future and getting others to imagine this too. One of the most revealing passages of the book comes when Washington preaches, character is a power. If you want to be powerful in the world, if you want to be strong, influential, and useful, you can be so in no better way than by having strong character. This is itself a very optimistic remark. Washington thinks that the world just has a way of cooperating with virtue. It's been said that Washington deliberately confuses the personal and the political, but it might be more accurate to say that he replaces the political with the personal. He has little faith in the efficacy of purely political movements, since in the end, racial oppression will be ended only if both black and white Americans improve morally. In the Atlanta Address, and again in Up From Slavery, he uses the phrase artificial forcing to describe attempts to end Southern racism through agitation or pressure from the North. This, he says, will never work. Rights will only ever be accorded to the Negro by the Southern white people themselves. How will they be induced to do this? By being confronted with black people who are obviously good citizens. Not just because they will see the benefit of this in material terms, but also because character is contagious. Virtue on the part of blacks will hold up a standard for whites to imitate. Conversely, like Plato's Socrates, he believes that wickedness hurts the perpetrator more than the victim. Whites who defraud blacks become dishonest more generally, and those who start by lynching members of another race end by lynching their own. Evil breeds evil, just as goodness breeds goodness. 
This is why, according to Washington, the two races must inevitably rise or fall together. Yoked together in a single nation, black and white people can learn to live together, but only if they learn how to live. As you might expect, given the bright outlook he foresaw for black people in America, he was dismissive about the project of emigration. The notion that African Americans should move en masse across the ocean to their homeland was, to his mind, out of the question and chimerical on practical grounds alone. But this did not stop him from taking an interest in Africa, even if he passed up chances to visit there in person. Washington's views on Africa evolved over his life. He admitted that, as a youngster, he absorbed the usual cliches about the continent, people who roam naked through the forest like wild beasts, as he put it. This attitude towards African culture is incidentally expressed in his provocative observation, we went into slavery without a language, we came out speaking the proud Anglo-Saxon tongue. But Washington was impressed by the glories of ancient Egypt when he heard about them from a specialist on this subject at the University of Chicago, and he also cherished hopes of exporting the Tuskegee philosophy to Africa. A group of the school's graduates attempted to apply its agricultural methods in Togo, albeit without much success. More fruitfully, Tuskegee was also visited by the Zulu leader, John Dube, who would later found the organization that became the African National Congress. Dube was impressed by Washington's methods and established a school along similar lines near Durban in 1901. Dube himself was sometimes called the Booker T. Washington of South Africa. Later up in West Africa, J.E.K. Agri of the Gold Coast, present-day Ghana, worked with the Phelps Stokes Fund to advance education in various parts of the continent. The philanthropist behind this fund had previously contributed to Tuskegee. Agri too became known as a Booker T. Washington, in his case of Africa as a whole. The reception of Washington's ideas in Africa also provides us with a striking connection to the oral traditions we covered in the first series of episodes on Africana philosophy. When a report of the famous Atlanta Compromise speech reached Edward Blyden, Blyden was favorably impressed by the line about one hand and separate fingers, and observed that the image was a common one among the aborigines of Africa. With figures like Dubé and Agri, we move into the next phase of our story of Africana philosophy, the story of the 20th century. This will be the focus of the third and final part of this series of episodes. But as Washington might say, first things first. The dispute between Washington and Du Bois will soon help us introduce the issues, concerns, and personalities of Africana philosophy in the 20th century, but we must first introduce Du Bois himself. Join us next time to meet the person often viewed as the greatest African-American intellectual of all, here on The History of Africana Philosophy. I'm gonna tell God all of my troubles.